Hi, this is the Monash Perioperative Medicine podcast series. My name's Jamie Smart, and in this series, we try and look at all aspects of perioperative medicine, uh, not just clinical topics, but we try and cover other topics that relate to how you might go about developing a perioperative medicine pathway in your institution. Recently, I had the pleasure of catching up with Professor Danny Liu. Danny is a clinical pharmacologist but also has a very strong interest in health economics. He's the chair of clinical outcomes research, the head of the division of clinical epidemiology and co-director of the Center of Cardiovascular Research and Education at Monash University. In this interview, Danny and I discussed a range of topics relating to health economics and how that would impact on developing a perioperative service. Thank you for your time, Danny. Thanks, Jamie. You have a background in clinical pharmacology. What got you interested in health economics? Jamie, when I finished my training clinically in clinical pharmacology, I did a PhD, and that PhD was in pharmacoepidemiology and pharmacoeconomics. I found it fascinating. And not only was the methods and the science very interesting, but the application and what it meant and how we used that information uh, to make decisions for practice and policy, I, I found that really interesting. Um, for me personally, uh, th- there aren't many clinicians who do health economics as well, um, and that makes it, uh, it gives me a perspective, you know, it's fairly uncommon. So health economics is quite a broad term. Um, maybe, could you explain for us what does it involve and what makes it dis- distinct from other areas of economics? Uh, it is a very broad term, Jamie. Health economics, I, I suppose, overall is, is about the funding and distribution of costs for healthcare and healthcare delivery uh, and how we use uh, good information or science to inform um, decision-making. Uh, the, the aspect that I'm interested in specifically is uh, can be described as health technology assessment, which is the specific assessment of the cost-effectiveness of healthcare interventions. Um, how's health economics generally different from other branches of economics? Uh, it's, at the end of the day, it's still about supply and demand, but there's a little bit of distortion to the supply and demand uh, relationship. Um, specifically, the demand comes from people who don't really want a product. People don't necessarily want healthcare, but they need it. And um, also that they are not often the major payers for that particular product. And then on the on the supply side, uh, it is usually um, the the people who supply the the product, which is healthcare, um, uh, often the people who make the decisions about how healthcare is delivered and to whom. It's a very unusual set of circumstances. Uh, uh, in terms of the relationship between who provides, who's the consumer and who's the provider and who pays for it. And that all makes it uh, very unique to health economics, Jamie. Okay. Now, look, I've heard you talk about uh, real-world evidence, this concept of real-world evidence. Can you perhaps explain what does real-world evidence mean and why it's important to consider this type of evidence when evaluating new interventions or a new, cu- or new care pathway? Yeah, it's a great question, Jamie. Real-world evidence, in broad terms, is evidence that is directly applicable, at least a lot more applicable to real life practice and policy. And why we make that distinction is because uh, the evidence that most clinicians are aware of that's drawn from clinical trials or other clinical studies are often not applicable directly to practice or policy because, for example, um, 
people in clinical trials are not representative of necessarily of uh, real life situations. So real world evidence uh, picks that out, is specific and focuses on drawing evidence that actually can be more directly applied. It's not to the exclusion of results from clinical trials or clinical studies so much as their combination with data from other sources uh, that makes them a bit more applicable. So for example, if we find that in a clinical trial that a particular drug works well in, within the trial setting, um, that information needs to be applied to, to whom that should, drug should be used uh, or prescribed rather, uh, how likely is it to be adhered to, what are the competing morbidities and mortality for that particular patient group, uh, and, and obviously what the costs are and what might be relevant outcomes for that patient that weren't measured necessarily in the trial. So those, that's an example of real-world evidence. Um, and, and we use real-world evidence to hopefully make decisions about how we practice and, and, and how we shape policy. Okay. Um, what about the terms efficacy and effectiveness? Now, I've heard them at times used interchangeably, and I think a lot of people do. But clearly there's a difference in, in this setting. What, are, what, what do those terms mean to you? Jamie, efficacy is um, a term uh, that can be described as information that a particular healthcare intervention has uh, potential benefit. And for the most part, that information is drawn from a clinical trial or an, another type of clinical study. Why I say the word potential is, is because um, there is often a situation whereby those clinical trials or clinical studies are not necessarily generalizable those findings not generalizable to real real world the real world and so effectiveness is the extension of of that and and that term is is more about information that this healthcare intervention or healthcare intervention actually has benefit in the real world so um, how we translate efficacy to effectiveness is to take a uh, an idea that is supported by from a clinical trial or clinical study, apply that to the real world setting. Will the drug, for example, be used by people? Um, does it have the um, balance against adverse effects that we might see in real life, in real world practice that weren't measured in clinical trials, etc.? Uh, and and we find that it does actually work in real world in the real world, and that's effectiveness. Okay, so look, I'm trying, I'm trying to put all that together in my mind. It seems. One of the issues, I mean, the, and you've stated that clinical trials are limited in terms of providing information on effectiveness, yet much of our clinical practice is based on evidence from clinical trials or from systematic reviews of such trials. So how do we move towards increased effectiveness? Yeah, it's a great question, Jamie. I think if we take a half step back and, and examine the kind of history and how this has evolved, you know, 12 years ago, 15 years ago, we were, as a clinical community, a healthcare community, keen to embrace this term. At the time was new evidence-based practice. And, and so therefore, that, that conscientious application of data from clinical trials and, and other clinical studies uh, was what we were really mindful of. Uh, and we didn't necessarily think beyond uh, what that might mean in the real world. And so, how we move from that, which is the early phase of evidence-based practice, if you like, to, to now a more uh, mature view of it, um, as you said, is to take that efficacy data from the 
this clinical studies and apply them and merge them with some real world data and then generate evidence of effectiveness. And so to that end, what it means practically is, is to for clinicians, other healthcare workers to be very conscious about what the results of a trial uh, mean when applied to real life rather than perhaps blindly applying them uh, to practice, you know, the day after the trial results are published in, in a major journal. Okay. Look, the next question um, I want to ask you, it goes towards the costs, the cost of healthcare and, um, and particularly for clinicians working in a, in a public system. Do you think the clinicians working in such a system have an ethical and moral responsibility to try and keep the cost of healthcare under control? Or should we base our practice on real world evidence in the belief there will be long-term cost effectiveness? Um, to answer your first question, no doubt. I, I think everyone has a, a responsibility to ensure that uh, healthcare and the healthcare system is, is um, used, utilised you know, fiscally in a responsible way. Having said that, as, as clinicians, our first priority uh, should be to, to uh, you know, best possible care for patients. And um, for the most part, thankfully, as clinicians, we don't think about Costs so much in a public system, uh, and that, and that's a great benefit of a universal healthcare system like ours. Um, but you know, to say that they shouldn't, um, that, that they uh, ignore costs altogether is probably wrong. You know, as you said, Jamie, there is a responsibility of all of us to make sure, you know, it's delivered efficiently or as efficiently as possible. Okay, um, look, thanks for that. That's great. Now, I just want to move on to, um, I guess, talking about the idea of, peri of perioperative medicine and, and setting up or new care pathways and new clinics. So if you were setting up or involved in setting up a new preoperative clinic, how would you calculate the value of such a service? So that's a, not an easy question to answer off the bat, um, Jamie, because it really depends on, on whose value uh, we're talking about. I think when we talk about value of healthcare, most of us would assume that that's value to the patients. So if we st start with that, then um, we need to be very conscious about um, what are outcomes of relevance and importance to patients. So in a periop service, for example, would be the extent to which the surgery goes well and gets them to return back to their life and doing what they want. Uh, for example, um, you know, someone returning to work or someone being able to, to play you know, 18 rounds of golf now again, um, so to be conscious about what in, is, matters to patients, what they want out of that particular uh, surgical procedure, uh, and to secondly, to make sure that we measure those outcomes that are relevant. Um, and then the third piece, Jamie, if you like, is, is to um, measure the costs of delivering that and providing those outcomes that are of value to patients. Um, of course, we could sort of couch value in, a, in other ways or define values in other ways. And uh, for clinicians, what we often measure and, and commonly measure and what we think is value are, are uh, outcomes like um, uh, surgical mortality or complication rates, etc. <clears throat> Those are value, valuable to us because that reflect the quality of care that we provide. Um, so we measure those and we, we routinely do for the most part. Um, but yours is a good question because I think it's important to define value from the perspective of whose value 
you know, we want to, to be um, measuring. And it's interesting what you're saying about the, um, the traditional outcome measures, because what we're finding, or what we've noticed more recently, there's been greater emphasis on patient reported outcomes and metrics um, such as days alive and at home for 30 days after surgery, um, as well as effective outcomes on productivity. Is this the right direction, do you think, for absolutely. us to be heading in with our, with our research? Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, this whole concept of patient-relevant research is, is, is critical. I mean, at the end of the day, we undertake research to improve the human condition. And, um, you know, uh, readmission or reoperation are important outcomes for a healthcare system, but may not be necessarily the most important for, uh, for people or patients and we're trying to uh, whose condition we're trying to improve. So, as you said, Jamie, the, the kind of conscientious movement now that is uh, embodied by this uh, patient reported outcome measures uh, initiative, for want a better term, I, mean, I think it's really important. Okay, so um, we'll just go back a step when you talked about the cost analysis when you're evalu evaluating a pathway. So, so why are cost analyses important if you're evaluating a, a, a perioperative medicine pathway or other hospital care? I suppose <clears throat> two reasons. The, the first is obviously that we want to make sure that if we're going to be spending money on uh, developing a new pathway or indeed any type of healthcare intervention that that, that money is used well uh, and is, is actually not being wasted or at least being used in an efficient manner. Um, the second reason is, is related to that is, is it, um, at the end of the day, we all have limited budgets. So if we take a broader picture, uh, a broader view of it, it is about our spending money on this particular intervention, meaning that it's not actually available for something else. Um, so it's about opportunity costs and that sort of wariness and consciousness, measuring costs, measuring outcomes, making sure that we are using what funds are available to us in the most efficient way. Okay. Danny, you said at the, the start of this, um, this talk that you're quite unique as being a, you know, a clinician who's got a very strong interest in health economics. And you know, I would think there are many reasons why clinicians don't get involved in health, anomic, health economics, the complexity of the issue and probably lack of training. Um, do you think they're the main reasons or do you think it's also that doctors want to be free to do what they think appropriate for a patient without some sort of perceived interference? Yeah. That's a good question, Jamie, and I don't really know, I'll be guessing, but uh, I think it'd be more the lack of exposure to to the the field, um, and I suppose in many ways, uh, like like clinicians getting into statistics or biostatistics, um, uh, there's a dryness to it because at the end of the day, it's it's about a lot of numbers and it's it's about um, uh, you know dry analyses etc. Um, the 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 saving grace or the 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 positive side of course is is what that all the results and and the resulting analysis actually mean and how you can apply them um, to your second point about whether or not clinicians avoided because you know they would rather have the freedom and not think about it I don't think that's the case um, you know personally just anecdotal experience when when we run workshops or talk to clinicians and and you know, give them some exposure to the health, the science of health economics. The the reaction is actually really positive, and and this interest in, and a kind of re, uh, opening of the eyes and saying, oh, that's actually how it happens, or or that's what that means, and and hopefully this course will you know at least provide some of that insight. Yeah, because I think it's you know it's obviously really important to have 
um, practicing clinicians that have, are involved in some of that decision making. I know that you're involved as well as being a clinician and a researcher, that you're, you're an educator as well. Um, are you seeing a bit of a change? Are, you, are we getting to get the right people interested and being educated in I health think economics? So. Yeah, I think so, Jamie. Uh, in, in Australia, um, we've, we're still probably, we're evolving, but we're still following a, a, a model whereby people who are trained in, in clinical medicine, in, in whatever craft that is, is pretty much all we do. Um, you know, in, in uh, other places, other markets, the US in particular, people often to uh, wear multiple hats. You know, people, postgraduate programs, for example, would get engineers who do subsequently do medicine. So they have a lot broader perspective or, or different perspectives. Um, so I think that's going to change, but the, the challenges of healthcare, we have an aging population, lots of demand for healthcare, at the end of the day still a cap budget essentially in, in, um, in healthcare funding, that's probably going to be a, also a motivator uh, of, of clinicians being more interested in this area. Okay, that's all the questions I've got for you. Thank you very much for Thanks, your time. Thanks Jamie, Good on you, cheers.